You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Turn our attention now to Romans chapter 14. We're going to read through this together and then we'll dismiss our kids to their kids class. Starting in verse 1, it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. (coughs) The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for the continued guidance that it gives us and how we're to live daily. And Father, as we come to um, a section that helps us understand and deal with areas that are not uh, as clear as we would like sometimes from your word, Father, help us to uh, examine the truth that's contained here. Help us to be able to draw principles that we need to make wise choices and decisions with things that we're faced with on a daily basis. And Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight from your word, help our minds to be renewed this morning as we strive to be honoring and pleasing to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. We come to Romans chapter 14. We've been discussing both in 12 and 13 principles related to 
uh, the type of people that we're to love. So our minds are to be renewed, and we said that as, a, as our minds are renewed, it leads us to, uh, to love our enemies, to love our neighbors, to maybe not go too far as to say to love government and love state, but obviously to be respectful towards our government, to be respectful towards our state, to be um, engaging that in prayer uh, versus uh, criticism towards others. And so kind of seeing practically how the gospel that we looked at from Romans 1 through 11 now leads to a practical daily type um, lifestyle and how that looks with different aspects of our life. And Romans 14 is instructions about how to interact with people within the church that vary in their beliefs, uh, specifically about things that they engage in on a daily basis. Uh, things that may be tied towards entertainment or uh, hobbies, things that are maybe neutral when it comes to a moral standpoint, but become very hot topics within the church. And, and there are people, good people, that will rest on both sides of some of these issues. What are some of the issues? And, and some of you guys already have a, a previous understanding of Romans 14. I've taught on it before, but I'm hoping to go uh, a little bit deeper and in a little bit different direction than maybe we went in last time when we looked at Romans 14. What are some of the, the hot topic issues that maybe people go to Romans chapter 14 to work through in determining whether it's okay or not okay for a Christian to participate in? What are some of the main ones that might cause division in churches today? Okay, alcohol, what else? Tobacco use, movies. Marijuana is becoming more of one. Tattoos. Anything else that jumps out at you? Those are, those are probably some of the main ones that we hear about a lot that maybe oftentimes get brought up as uh, people from different churches or denominations interact. Sometimes that's, the, that's some of the questions that you hear. Well, what does your church think about this? What does your church think about this? Um, Rather than, what does your church say about the gospel? What does your church believe about Jesus? It's, what does your church believe about alcohol? Um, and that was one of the first questions that I got from a visitor recently. What does your church think about alcohol? Now, we discussed last week that that's a very relevant issue within their context right now from the church they're coming from. Uh, but oftentimes, that's one of the first things that get asked. What does your church teach about some of these minor issues? And, and, and they've become very major issues for the church body, for Christianity today. The examples that Paul gives us are not typically issues that we're wrestling through and dealing with. But the principles that are contained here in Romans 14 still very much apply to the topics that we've just listed. So while Paul does not address alcohol specifically, does not address tattoos, uh, does not address movie going, does not address tobacco use or marijuana use, those, those principles are there. And they need to be drawn out from this chapter today so that we can rightly apply them within our life. Now, what I see initially kind of working through this chapter as we seek to love our enemies that we saw in chapter 12, as we seek to love our neighbors, we're also called to love those that believe differently than us. Uh, we're called to love people that believe differently than us. Now, a lot of us have come from more restrictive backgrounds in our church upbringing, have, have found our way here to Sovereign Hope, so we're not dealing a whole lot with people that are going to hold to that more restrictive perspective here. Um, but it's important for us to be reminded that as God builds this church, there are going to be people that come that have maybe more of a restrictive mindset. Or 
you may still have interaction with people that are in those contexts. I know Ben and I talk a lot about a church that we were at in the past where we're still familiar with people that go there that would still hold very tightly to some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Things that we would say, hey, we're, we're more free in now. We, we see this freedom in Christ. We've been, we've been saved from this. We don't have to worry about this. We're very familiar with believers that would still hold tightly to say, no, we're not free in this area. And so while we may not specifically deal with them within the context of this local church, when we talk about the church as a whole, the church from a broader perspective, most of us are probably going to interact with people, whether it's at work, whether it's within our family, friends that we have that go to other churches. This will be relevant, even if we don't specifically see any tension with people within our current local church right here. Um, we're called to love these people. We're called to, to interact with them in a specific way that we'll see today. Uh, this passage is not based on whether we're to obey Scripture or not. So what we're talking about today is not, hey, are we supposed to obey Scripture or are we free to not obey Scripture? That, that's not the issue here. The issue has to do more with issues that are unclear in Scripture, where we have to rely more on personal conviction as our guidance for um, how that's going to look in our life. Ultimately, what we're going to find today is that the strong believer's position is the right position. So we're going to compare and contrast the strong faith position and the weak faith position. And what we learn is that Paul would, would adamantly say the strong believer, the, the strong faith perspective is the right perspective. Uh, that's the perspective that he would take. That's the side that he would stand on. But... With being right comes great responsibility, and he's going to highlight the fact that just because you're right doesn't give you license to uh, enjoy that rightness all the time. What we're also going to find is that both the, the strong and the weak believer need exhortation concerning their attitude and their actions. And really the focus of the chapter is on the strong believer rather than convincing the weak believer. So what we don't find is Paul saying, hey, the, the strong believer is right about these issues. So now let me spend a chapter telling the weak believer how to catch up with the strong believer. Instead, the focus of the chapter is the strong believer reacting and interacting properly with the one who doesn't see things the same way. So Paul does not spend time trying to convince the weak believer that these things are okay for a Christian. Instead, he spends time convincing the strong believer to work rightly with that weak believer. Both the weak believer and the strong believer are concerned about the other falling away. That's, that's ultimately the concern here. The, the person who's restrictive in some of the things that he believes a Christian can't do is restrictive in that because he doesn't want uh, other individuals to fall away from the faith because they become too worldly, right? So if you come from a perspective where alcohol was viewed as sinful or tobacco use was sinful, it was typically attributed to, well, that's of the world, and if you're participating in those things, you're going to get everything else that goes with that too, and you're going to fall away from the faith. You're going to end up uh, drunk in a bar, high on marijuana, with no interest in Christ. And so the restrictive church perspective has always been, stay away from that so you don't fall away from the faith. The, the free person, the person who says it's okay to wear shorts on Sunday mornings now, we don't have to wear a suit and tie, we can, we can, we can drink wine in our dinner, that person's concerned about the other, the other guy being bored with the Christian faith, right? Like, you're going to get so bored because of all the restrictions that are placed on you, you're going to finally say, you know, forget this, like, I want to go do what everybody else is doing. 
So both have the same concern. We want to see believers persevere to the end. One says, I don't want you to be bored while you're here. The other one says, I don't want you to just completely lose yourself in this world. So both are right in their concern. I want you to make it to the end. Both have different perspectives, though, about how to get to the end. One says, let's stay far away from this stuff. The other one says, hey, let's enjoy the process while we're getting to the end. And let's don't be so restrictive knowing that Christ has freed us from this burden. I think it's also important to note that while these issues seem minor, they're directly tied to eternal issues of heaven and hell. So you could sit there and think, well, this isn't a big deal. Alcohol, tobacco use, uh, tattoos, like in the end, who really cares about those things? They're minor issues. But what Paul highlights here at the end is that if we're not careful, this will wreck people's faith. There are eternal consequences for how these minor issues are handled. And what I shared with you last week, there's a church that's going through anguish right now because of this issue. That, 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 that churches are, are splitting over this type of stuff. And so the gospel is being hindered. People's faiths are being affected by what we could label as minor issues. So while the issues are minor in and of themselves, Christianity churches have made them more major issues. Like I said, it's one of the first questions that you'll get asked sometimes. What does your church believe about this stuff? And so while it's a minor issue, it's a major issue when we talk eternal significance. And so it's relevant for us to really work through this chapter and not just see it as a minor issue. And then lastly, kind of some initial thoughts. We are what we need to understand as we move into this chapter is that we are free from sin's penalty. We are free from death's power. We are free from hell's punishment. And we are free from the flesh's persuasion. These are things that Christ has set us free from. As new covenant Christians, we are free from Old Testament laws that were external and ceremonial. So as we talked about New Covenant theology, we said there's a lot of things from the Old Testament that was imposed upon Israel as a nation that are no longer there present in the New Testament. And so we're not bound to those things. And some of us have that knowledge. Some of us don't have that knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8 lets us know about that. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 6 and 7, Paul's addressing some of these same issues here. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul says, here's the reality, is that Jesus owns everything. And so we as Christians are permitted to enjoy creation in its rightful intent. But there are some people due to previous associations in life that can't handle all of creation and all that the Lord has created. And so they don't possess that knowledge. They don't have knowledge that everything is submitted to Christ. And so because they lack some of that knowledge, lack some of the faith that's needed to be in that knowledge, some of these activities they can't handle and it doesn't work for them and it becomes sin for them because of their weaknesses. Um, and so... We need to understand as we work through this that it really boils down to a knowledge issue. What do we know about God's word? How has that really uh, impacted us from a trust standpoint? Are we trusting in that truth from God's word? 
Because when we're doing that, it will free us in some of this activity. Now, before we get into the the heavy portion of our notes, I think it's important to note that um, if you're sitting here today, just because you drink alcohol or have a tattoo or use tobacco, it does not make you the strong believer. Now, that, that, that's something that, that can easily be misconstrued. You read through this, and you're like, man, I love to drink alcohol. Like, I do it responsibly. I don't get drunk, but I really enjoy it. I'm the strong guy here. I'm right. The people that don't drink alcohol are wrong. So the flip side is true. If you're sitting here just because you don't drink alcohol, just because you haven't visited the tattoo parlor, and just because you don't use tobacco doesn't make you the weak believer either. The action is not what defines you. It's the knowledge that you possess that defines you in these two categories. So don't just look at your behavior and say, okay, this is what I do. I must be the strong guy in this passage. Or this is what I don't do. I must be the weak guy in this passage. That's not the case. And we're going to see that it's really based more internally than externally as far as which category you're grouped in. So let's turn our attention to Romans 14 and see what Paul has in store for us today through the Holy Spirit's leading in his life as he wrote this 2,000 years ago. First of all, what we can draw from this is that we should expect diversity within our church. We should expect diversity within our church. The guidance in this chapter is based on how to live with it versus how to remove it. Look what Paul says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That has big implications for how we receive people here in membership to our church at Sovereign Hope. Right? So we don't ask people, hey, do you agree with us on alcohol, tattoo, and tobacco use? And if they don't, we don't spend time in our membership process trying to change their opinions and, and quarreling with them over it. There's a welcoming perspective that's applied here. Paul demonstrates it because, like I said, he does not proceed in this chapter to try to convince the weak believer not to observe the Sabbath and not to eat, or, or it doesn't encourage them to eat certain meats. He kind of leaves it as an issue that they still have to decide about. Paul says, ultimately, we welcome these people. They may differ in how they believe with you, but you welcome them. You welcome them, and you don't quarrel with them. So what we find is that the church is made up of varying faiths. Varying faiths, because he describes one here as weak in faith, and then another as strong in faith. There's varying faiths within the church, both within our context here and in the church abroad. People with strong faith and people who are weak in the faith. Who are these people? How are they defined and described in this passage? The person who's strong in faith is one who understands freedom in Christ in a way that liberates him from traditions and rituals that aren't binding on the New Testament believer. It's one who understands freedom in Christ in a way that liberates him from traditions and rituals that are not binding on the New Testament believer. It's one who embraces creation in a God-glorifying way. One who embraces creation in a God-glorifying way. One who understands freedom in Christ in a way that liberates him 
from traditions and rituals not binding on the New Testament believer. And then one who embraces creation in a God-glorifying way. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let me back up and read verse 1 to you. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul's highlighting to Timothy that there's coming a time when people will seek to impose some of this stuff. And people will violate their conscience. And we're going to see that the conscience comes into play here at the end of the chapter. That we're never to violate that conscience. But what's going to happen is that people are going to come with such convincing arguments and restrictions that violates people's conscience that causes them to depart from the faith. These aren't welcoming people that say, hey, it's okay, we disagree. We're not, we're not really elaborated here on the, um, the foods and the marriage aspect, but it's people who are saying uh, specific things about not marrying and not eating certain things causes people to depart from the faith. Paul says we're to welcome people that disagree about some of these issues that, that may or, or may not be right or wrong for an individual. We're to welcome them. We're to, we're to receive them. We're not to quarrel with them. We, those of us that are in the strong category, are going to say that the world, the earth, belongs to the Lord, that everything's good, everything's permissible in that sense. But we're going to be sensitive knowing that it's not always permissible for everybody, that it's based on their knowledge and understanding and their conscience leading them in some of these activities. We're going to see that as we uh, allow this chapter to unfold for us. I want to try to not jump around too much, but I want to make sure that we cover what's, what's being portrayed here from the whole chapter. Who are the weak in faith? The weak in faith is one who believes abstaining, one who believes abstaining from aspects of creation, one who believes abstaining from aspects of creation is more Christ-exalting than participating. One who believes abstaining from aspects of creation is more Christ-exalting than participating. It's one who has not yet fully understood freedom proclaimed in Scripture. One who believes abstaining is more Christ-exalting than participating. One who has not fully understood freedom proclaimed in scripture it's also one who feels obligated to tradition a lot of times you're going to find the weaker believer is is ingrained in what he's been told versus what he has learned it's going to be more uh things that he has been raised to believe 
versus things that he's really convicted about based on his own study. Um, it's one who doesn't fully realize freedom that's available in Christ. It's one who's bound to tradition and believes that it's more Christ-exalting than participating. A lot of times this person thinks they're the stronger believer. Like, a lot of times weak believer sounds like the one who is going to be prone to give in to the flesh. Because we use that term, somebody who's weak in their faith. A lot of times we mean that, hey, they've still got some maturity that needs to happen, or they're going to fall by the wayside. They're going to they're hang with the wrong crowd and be influenced by people. So a lot of times the person who's more restrictive, the person who says drinking alcohol is wrong, using tobacco is wrong, getting a tattoo is wrong, they see themselves as a stronger believer because a lot of times holiness is attributed to restrictiveness. So if I'm not engaging in some of these things, I must be better than those that are. So a lot of times this person would never label themselves as weak. I'm the one that's more holy because I'm withholding myself from the things of the world. The reminder that we have here is that his position is wrong. This perspective is wrong. And his attitude is wrong because he's judging other people for not being wrong with him is really what it boils down to. Not only is he wrong about these things being wrong and being sinful for other Christians to participate in, he's wrong in judging them for not seeing things his way. Because he's wrong and now he's making other people guilty for not also being wrong with him. Church is made up of varying faith. Secondly, the church is made up of varying perspectives. So we're going to have people that are weak in the faith, strong in the faith. We're going to have people that vary in their beliefs. Paul gives two examples here. The first is what we eat and drink. What we eat and drink. And then the second example that he gives is the Sabbath and kind of the role that it plays within the Christian's life. Now, we're not told exactly the details of this, so we could kind of go off on some different trails here. What, what, what was, the, what was the, the point that Paul was trying to make? Was this somebody who was saying, hey, we should be worshiping on Saturday versus Sunday? Or was it somebody who was saying, hey, we can worship on Sunday, but we need to treat it like a Saturday. Like We need to be very restrictive in our activity, which means we come, we worship, we go home, we rest. We don't do anything physically demanding of us. So, uh, you know, no gallivanting around around town during the afternoon and, and wearing yourself out when you should be at home just sleeping and resting and, and enjoying the day with the Lord. We're not told specifically what the issue is here. It's not, we're not sure if it's, hey, Saturday versus Sunday or Sunday's okay, but just treat it like a Saturday. But what, we're, what, we're, what we do kind of understand is that there was some issue regarding the Sabbath and things that were taught in the Old Testament about the Sabbath and how that translates into the New Testament uh, believer circumstances. When it comes to eating and drinking, now he specifically highlights the eating aspect here at the beginning of the chapter. Once you get down towards the end of the chapter, um, verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine. Um, he brings in that drinking aspect. The fact is, is that food and drink is cleansed by God. Okay, so food and drink is cleansed by God. Mark 7, 18 through 19. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Okay, so I grew up in a setting where some of this stuff was prohibited, like 
you were, you were a, a bad Christian if you engaged in some of this stuff. Jesus reminds us here, he says, look, this stuff doesn't make you sinful. It doesn't make you defiled. This stuff is cleansed by God. This stuff belongs to the Lord. He created everything that we have. So in and of itself, these things don't defile us. That's a fact from Scripture. The church has no right to place restrictions on what a person eats or drinks. I really believe that. Like it would, be, it would be wrong, and I've been in settings where that has been imposed, that this is wrong for you to drink alcohol. I don't see any license in Scripture to be able to stand here before you as your shepherd and say, this is what you are allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat. This is what you're allowed to drink and not allowed to drink. Now, I can't impose that upon you uh, based on the teachings of Christ. So That, too, is a fact. Another fact that clean things can become unclean. So in and of themselves, they are clean, but in no way should everybody walk out here for lunch and go order an alcoholic beverage at the restaurant that you choose. So the fact is, is that it's clean, but it does not give permission for everybody here to now go out and do it. Because the clean thing can become unclean, according to Paul. He says... Um, Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So again, just because these facts are true, that these things are not prohibited for a Christian, these things are not sinful, it does not then give permission for everyone to do it. And we're going to see what we mean by that as we work through this chapter some more. In regards to food... Because that really isn't much of an issue for us, um, unless you're eating marijuana brownies, potentially. That's, we could tie it into that, maybe. But we don't have a lot of discussion about, oh, it's wrong for a Christian to eat that. Um, this was tied more to a cultural thing, where you had Gentiles who were being saved out of pagan rituals, where they were offering meat to idols, and that was part of their worship, was eating it. So you had some Gentiles who were getting saved that were like, I can't eat meat offered to idols. It takes me back to my days of past where I wasn't a Christian. And it was offensive because they knew what had gone on in those temples with the, with the prostitutes and the, the, the sexual worship. And so for them, it just took them back to a dark place that they didn't want to be in. You had Jewish people who were also concerned about whether the animals had been slaughtered properly and had the blood been drained properly according to Old Testament uh, standards. And so there was varying perspectives even on how okay meat was to eat. Where did it come from? How was it handled? So you had some people that just said, you know what, I'm going to be safe and just eat the vegetables. I'm, I'm going I'm to be like Daniel and be on the Daniel diet. I'm going to stay away from the meat because who knows where it's been and who knows who's touched it kind of thing. So that was kind of the issue that maybe, again, doesn't translate to today, but we've already discussed there are some other things that we deal with today that, that these same principles could be applied to. Um, when it comes to the Sabbath and, and the Sunday, uh, this was a huge issue during that time as well, John five eighteen, It's part of the reason Jesus was killed. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's a great passage when you're talking to uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, that don't want to see Jesus on the same level as Yahweh, God the Father, to them, who is a separate being. Oh, Jesus didn't put himself in that position. Jesus didn't claim to be God. Yes, he did. That's why they killed him. 
If he was just a prophet, if he was just a good guy, they would have never gone to great lengths to kill him. They killed him because he was abusing the Sabbath in their mind. He was making himself equal with God. The Sabbath was a huge issue uh, specifically for the Jewish people, and they wanted to impose these restrictions on Gentiles who were coming in, who were kind of oblivious to the whole Sabbath uh, ritual and restrictions. Colossians 2.16 Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now this is where, you know, I told you covenant, new covenant theology, um, I would, I, personally, I would say that as a believer, Jesus has given us commands and laws that we're to obey. The Old Testament laws were for Old Testament Israel. We see a lot of them repeated in the New Testament. What we don't find is any instructions about how to handle Sunday. That we've kind of seen Sunday replace Saturday as the holy day in the life of a believer. Um, that's why, I don't know if you're familiar, but I think historically that's why we have two-day weekends because there was such division over, is it Saturday or is it Sunday? Let's just go with both. So I'm very thankful that we couldn't always work through which one was better. We just went with both. So now we get two days for those of us that work five-day weeks. Um, hang on, i got to figure out where I was with that now. Um, so there, there's no uh, restrictions imposed upon the new believer as far as what is okay for a Sunday. We're told in Scripture that we're to gather. We're to gather with believers regularly. But I believe we do it more than just a Bible study. So it, I don't think it gives us provision to say, hey, I meet with somebody on Sunday or uh, Monday morning for breakfast. That's my church. I think there is more guidance than just, hey, make sure you spend time with a believer during the week and call that church. There's the elder principle. The, there's the shepherd taking care of your soul principle. I doubt your partner for lunch or for breakfast at McDonald's on a Monday morning wants to take account for your soul. So there's implications that church membership is part of the New Testament believer's life. But there are churches that meet on Saturday nights because they share a building with a church that has Sunday morning worship. And they're okay for that. They're okay for that because the strong perspective, the right perspective, is that it doesn't really matter which day you're doing it on that there needs to be time devoted to the Lord in the context of the local church. Um, I think the principle for why we even set aside a day, it's very clear that it's part of the creative order, right? So we have days because of the sun and its rotation, right? We have years because of the earth rotating around the sun. We don't have weeks because of anything going on in nature. That, that's because of the, of the creative order. Another, another proof of of Scripture and the validity of Scripture, that, that that's another aspect that our culture is completely shaped by Genesis 1. We have seven-day weeks because God created it that way. We have a calendar that's based on Jesus when he came and when he left, A.D., B.C., because Jesus really existed. So the week is not something that, uh, from a secular standpoint, we do because that's what nature does. The week is set up because God set it up that way. He set aside a day of rest. Now, the New Testament believer worships on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And it was a break from historical Judaism that worshiped on Saturday. But there's no restrictions placed on the believer about what Sunday has to look like, how much physical activity is allowed, what type of activities are and aren't allowed on that day. Um, we're to devote time to the Lord. We're to be a part of a local church. If that church happens to meet on Monday nights, so be it. Um, were to have that type of perspective. I think that's the strong perspective. So those are the examples that Paul gives. Now he gives us instruction about how to embrace our differences. 
How do we embrace the fact that we are different and that we're going to believe differently about some of these issues? Not all diversity has to be good or evil. So it's not, these aren't issues that um, are inherently good or bad. But there's some temptations here that we have to be careful of. Temptation number one, for the strong to despise the weak. The first temptation that Paul kind of addresses here is that if we're not careful, the strong believer is going to despise the weak believer. He's going he's gonna to despise him. He's going to be critical of him. He's going to think that he is lesser of a Christian because of the restrictive demands that he places on his life. And you may have seen this kind of rise up in your own life. You being, being pulled out from some of that, you look back on it. Maybe you go to a restaurant on a Sunday. You see a man sitting there in a suit and you think, man, that guy doesn't realize that he can wear shorts to church and be a lot more comfortable than what he's wearing to his church. We can be guilty of despising someone that does things differently. Maybe you're in a setting where you find out that someone says, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't drink alcohol, I don't think it's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't do that. In your mind you could think, oh man, the guy's just missing out, he doesn't realize, he doesn't realize the freedom, what a, what a, what an, uh, a non-student of the word that he is. He, he should spend more time studying like me to realize his freedom in this area. The temptation is, is that seeing freedom is going to then cause you to despise those that haven't seen it and look down upon them and consider them immature, consider them behind the times, consider them stuck in traditions, and, and look negatively on them, and maybe even label, label them legalistic. Now, that term gets thrown around a lot in our culture, specifically in this area, uh, people that are wanting to get out of this restrictive background, they want to label people legalistic. And we need to be very careful about that term because Paul does not consider these people legalistic. Legalism has the idea of imposing works upon somebody to be saved. And there was the tendency for this to happen, specifically around circumcision. Jewish people saying, you have to be circumcised to be right with God. That's legalistic. That's saying if you don't do this, then you can't go to heaven. You can't be with Christ. Paul never addresses these people with, with fire like that. Now, he does in some instances. Um, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In Galatians 5, 1 through 3. For freedom, uh, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. There was an attitude in the early church where things were being imposed upon believers that was very legalistic. It was, it was distorting the gospel. You have to do these things or you can't be saved. Paul doesn't address these people that strongly. He doesn't say that they have imposed their Sabbath views or their meat and vegetable views in such a way that it's distorted the gospel. 
These people seem to have a healthy attitude of why they're not doing it and why they think others should do it. It's not a salvation issue, it's a sanctification issue. I want you to be holy, I don't want you to fall away. So he doesn't condemn these people for distorting the gospel and imposing rules and regulations that that, uh, affected their salvation. That's why he says to welcome these people. If these people were distorting the gospel, he would have never told them to be welcomed into your church. He says, curse those people. Curse those people. So that gives us some insight, I think, into uh, the type of people we're talking about. Um, They have a different perspective than, than a legalistic perspective. So that temptation to despise these people. Some questions for us to ask. Have I misused my freedom and caused disunity and harm to others? So rather than turning our perspective to those that don't do what we do, we turn their perspective more to ourselves. Have I misused any freedom that's caused disunity? Have I become self-indulgent in my liberty and used my freedom as provision for the flesh? These are questions that we can ask if we think we're in that strong category. Rather than looking at the other person and judging him or despising him, instead asking the questions, have I caused disunity and harm to others with my freedom? Have I become self-indulgent? Am I using my freedom as a provision for the flesh? The second temptation, for the weak to judge the strong. For the weak to judge the strong. A lot of times the, the one that comes from the more restrictive background will judge those that don't do things the way they do them. View them as worldly and immature. So both temptations here is for the other to view the other as immature. You don't understand scripture. You don't understand sanctification. You don't understand holiness. You don't understand freedom. The question for the questions for the weak believer to ask, have I elevated matters of preference too highly? Have I become self-exalting in my abstinence? That's a temptation, too, for the weak believer to exalt himself because he doesn't do these things that others do. The third temptation for both to argue and debate. The temptation is when you get a strong believer and a weak believer together is that they're going to quarrel about it, debate about it, and push for their position. Paul says do not quarrel with each other over these things. Welcome each other. Put the other's needs above your own, following with the mindset of Philippians 2. Now there's reasons why we welcome and we don't fight. It's why he doesn't condemn these people for distorting the gospel, because there's so many similarities between the strong and weak believer. And so I want to highlight three of them for you. Reality number one, the same Lord The same Lord. They are both welcomed by God. Look at some of the things that Paul says about these individuals. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we die. We live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we d- whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. 
These people have been welcomed by God, both strong and weak. Both had Christ die for them, and both embraced the gospel of faith. Jesus died for the weak believer and the strong believer. That's why we welcome each other, because we've been embraced by God. We've been welcomed by God. We have the same Lord. Reality number two, the same judgment. Both are judged by God. Both will give an account for their actions. Both will give an account for actions. He talks about the fact that we will both stand before God one day. And we will be made to stand, meaning that because we're true believers, we will stand before God. But we'll give an account for the decisions that we've made. We'll give an account for those decisions. And as strong and weak believer, we can leave that judgment to God. We can let God sort that out in the end, who was more right, who was more wrong in some of these issues. Both will yield to Christ forever. This, this passage is quoted here for it's written, verse 11, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. That comes from Isaiah 45, 23. It's eerily similar to Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Just another nugget there for people that don't want to see Jesus as God. This is an Old Testament passage. You will bow before me. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. In the New Testament, we're told that applies to Jesus. We will all yield to Jesus one day. We'll yield our freedoms and restrictions to Jesus, and we will submit everything to him in the right way, in the proper way, in the fullest way, when we see him in all his glory one day. And then the last reality, the same aim. The same aim. Both are striving to honor God with thanksgiving. And that should, that should unify us. Even though we disagree, there's unity. We already talked about the fact. We both want everybody to make it to the end. We want endurance. But look at some of the other things. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Both are living and dying for the Lord's sake. Both are seeking to glorify God in all they do. We have the same goal. We're trying to honor God. And that's where unity can happen and not quarreling and disagreement. We both want what's best for each other. We both want, ultimately, God to receive glory. So our attitude and our mindset are, are, are consistent. We both want the same things. And it's both flowing from saving faith. Because at the very end of this chapter, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But everything we see here, these people's actions are flowing from faith. Faith in what they believe brings God the most glory. So we embrace that diversity. We don't try to fight against it. We, we see unity there in, in our purposes we see unity in the, in the plan that Christ has for us. He died for us. We're all going to stand before him, and we're all seeking to glorify God in our actions. Then our last section here, develop unity. Develop unity. A couple of things that Paul gives us that he desires for us to do as both strong and weak believers. He says in verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It doesn't say that we should be convinced based on what our parents told us. It doesn't say we should be convinced on what our church 
tells us we're to be convinced in our own minds. And we've talked about this before. The way that we increase our faith, the way that we solidify our faith is to be in God's word. So the way that we become fully confident, fully confident about what God's word teaches about tattoos or alcohol or um, tobacco use, that we're in God's word, that we're letting the Holy Spirit guide us, giving us insight in what it means to walk in the spirit, not walk in the flesh. We become fully convinced in our own mind. We're to pursue doctrinal stability personally. We're to pursue doctrinal stability personally. And we're going to see in this that we're to, we're to let our conscience guide us, but not by itself. Because our conscience can be wrong. Our heart can be deceitful. While we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there are times when our feelings and what we think we should do are wrong. And so we let our conscience guide us, but as long as that conscience is restrained by time in God's Word. It's a very dangerous place to be in when you're making decisions, big-time decisions that are non-moral issues, where to go to college, who to marry, where to live, buy a house, not buy a house, buy a car, not buy a car. And letting your conscience and your feelings tell you what to do in those situations if you haven't been spending faithful time in God's Word. Because now you're basing it completely on your understanding of the situation. Paul says, be fully convinced in your mind, let your conscience be your guide, but make sure that it's shaped by God's word. Don't just leave it to chance that your conscience is going to get you in the right position. Pursue doctrinal stability. Resolve to know what you believe and why, Paul says. Be confident. Let the word shape your Christianity, not your background, not your upbringing. Some principles that come from that. We obey direct commands in Scripture. So where Scripture is clear, we obey it. We learn principles from Scripture. So, Scripture doesn't say anything about marijuana. Scripture does say some things about alcohol. tells us that the abuse of alcohol, we become drunk, and it's sinful because we're not in our right mind. We're not being led by the Spirit anymore. We're, uh, we're, we're being led by the alcohol. Now, I don't, honestly confess I don't know enough about drugs, but I know that drugs lead to a state of mind where you're no longer in control a lot of times. You're making decisions based on the drug versus the spirit. And I don't know a whole lot of people that use the drugs and don't get that experience, right? There are people that enjoy the taste of wine. There are people that enjoy the taste of beer. They can do it without getting drunk. There may be people out there like this, but I've never met anybody that enjoyed marijuana without getting high off of it. I don't even know if that's really impossible. Um... So, per chance we had somebody that just really loved the taste of marijuana and got no buzz off over it, All right, maybe, maybe you're permitted to do it. Um, but what we pull from the principles of Scripture is we're to be led by the Spirit constantly and not by some type of substance, not by creation. And so that principle could then be applied to that situation. So we obey direct commands, we learn principles, we allow the Holy Spirit to shape our convictions. Every one of us should go hard after God until we can be fully persuaded in our own mind that our choice is a genuine expression of trust in Him. Let me read that to you again. I you didn't get that written down. Every one of us should go hard after God until we can be fully persuaded in our own mind that our choice 
is a genuine expression of trust in him. Let me say it to you a different way. We must be convinced that our action is not sinful, that it's honoring to Christ, and it's the best way I can think of for me to act. Let me say that to you again. We must be convinced that our action is not sinful, that it's honoring to Christ, and it's the best way that we can act. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Taking small issues and making them big issues. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or not eat, whether you drink or don't drink, do everything to the glory of God. That's what the weak believer and strong believer are trying to do in Romans 14. Some abstain, some participate, but they're both trying to glorify God. Paul says, whatever you do, eat or drink, make sure you're honoring and glorifying God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Everything that we do has to be filtered through the question, is this honoring to God? Is this pleasing to God? Let me back up to something I said earlier. If the only question that you're asking is, is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? You're not the strong believer. If your only question is, is it sinful for me to drink alcohol? Is it sinful for me to use tobacco? You're not the strong believer. The strong believer says, can I do this? Should I do this? The weak believer stops short and says, I can do this. I can do this, so I'm going to do it. Strong believer says, should I do this? So let me give you some insight personally. I was raised, tattoos were wrong, alcohol is wrong, tobacco use, wrong. Okay, All those things, wrong. I've been freed from that. I've been fully convinced in my mind through study of God's word that a Christian is permitted to drink alcohol, a Christian is permitted to use tobacco, a Christian is permitted to get a tattoo. I personally have um, explored tobacco use. Uh, I've, I've explored a pipe. I've explored a cigar. Uh, I want to feel relaxed when I do it. I want to experience fellowship and, and camaraderie and community when I do it. Um, I've done it a few times over the past four years. So I haven't fully seen tons of benefit from it, so it's not a big part of my life. It's a, it's a minimal part of my life. I haven't smoked a cigar in over a year. I've only smoked like two in my life. I believe a Christian's permitted to drink alcohol. One time I tasted an O'Doul's, which is a beer that's non-alcoholic. It just tastes like beer, and I hated it. Awful. I've smelled alcohol, and it burns me, and so I've, I've, I've not ever wanted to taste it. So for me personally, I've just not seen a benefit for me to participate in it. Um, I think people that drink alcohol are fine. They're permitted to do that. I don't, they're free in Christ to do that. Um, and there are people that are, are using it for positive purposes, good purposes. Same with the tobacco use. Um, I would love to get a tattoo one day. Um, I haven't decided on the design, which is part of the reason I don't have it. But then I've also not, I'm not fully convinced in my mind that I should get one. Um, to give you an example, Spencer, one of our external elders, won a contest and got a free tattoo and opted to get 
uh, King David on his arm with a slaughtered Goliath. David, like, holding this bloody head with a sword, like, yes, the champion, like, we've conquered this, this giant. It was, really, it was really good. It was a really good tattoo. He's now called to work in India with Muslims, and it's offensive. It's offensive because of militant Muslims who kill. And so he had to go back and rework the entire thing. Could have been on one of those cover-up tattoo shows because now he's got like just some random tribal stuff that was the only thing that he could get basically to cover this up. And so I have it in the back of my mind, I don't want to be called to an area one day where something permanent on me is now offensive for the gospel. If I'm staying here for the rest of my life, I think, I think tattoos can be used for gospel purposes. I think when you put something there, it's a conversation starter. Why did you get this? What does it mean? It allows you to have conversations that can, that it can expand the kingdom. But there's some places you can't have that conversation. You can't get past the offensiveness of it. And so I'm still working through. Am I fully convinced that this is a profitable thing for me? He tells us to pursue doctrinal stability. Two more things here. Grip your abstaining convictions strongly. Grip your abstaining convictions strongly. And grip your freeing convictions loosely. Grip your abstaining convictions strongly. Grip your freeing convictions loosely. Now, I'm going to run through some statements here. I'm not going to give you time to write them all down. If you want to get them from me later, you can. But for the sake of time, I just want to make sure that we get through this. If you need to get it written down later, we can do that. Underneath, grip your abstaining conviction strongly. Do not live your life and make choices based on what others tell you to do. What's right for them might not be right for you. That's what we learned from Romans 14. It can be unclean to you. If your conscience does not allow you to do it, you were raised a certain way, you were taught a certain way, my conscience tells me I can't drink alcohol. My conscience tells me I can't use tobacco. Then just because you're hanging out with somebody that says, hey, you're free in Christ, drink this, smoke this, chew this, whatever, it's not okay for you to. That's why I told you, the facts are these things are okay. But the fact is, that doesn't mean that everybody can go out today and do it. Because if you're violating your conscience, Paul has big issue with that. He says, don't violate it. Don't sear your conscience. Don't live your life making choices based on what others tell you to do. Do not place others' approval or physical pleasure over your conscience. Don't base your decisions on what other people tell you or what you think you'll experience through some of these activities. Don't crave what you believe to be wrong. Do not get in the habit of violating your conscience. If you violate on little things, it will lead you to violate on bigger things. If you start developing that habit, oh, I don't think I should be drinking alcohol. Everybody else is doing it. My pastor told me it's okay, it's, we're free in Christ to do it, so I'm going to drink it. You violate your conscience, I guarantee you're going to go home that night and feel guilty about it. There was a time when I did not smoke tobacco. Uh, even though I knew it was okay, I was hanging out with people that I respected greatly that were doing it, my conscience wouldn't let me do it. I knew I will feel guilty tonight when I go home. I'll feel guilty if my mom or dad ever asked me, have you smoked anything? To have to tell them yes. But there came a point where my conscience freed me to now do it. To where I felt like I could participate. I could try it out, see if I liked it, didn't like it. It can become unclean to you if you think it's unclean, if your conscience does not free you to do it. And the only way to fix your conscience is to be in the Word. 
It's not to sit down with somebody and let him tell you his experience. You only become fully convinced in your mind if you see it in God's word, not if we have a breakout session on why tobacco use is okay for the believer. You've got to resolve to see that in God's word. Grip your freeing convictions loosely. The strong believer must not cause offense to the weak believer. That's where the instruction comes here at the end of Romans 14. Don't cause others to stumble with your freedom. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So what does that look like for the strong believer? The strong believer must function as a stepping stone to grow the weak believer's faith rather than a stumbling block to destroy it. So if you're in the category where you say, I think these things are okay, I've seen that in Scripture, your perspective has to be that you are a stepping stone for those that don't see it that way versus a stumbling block, that you don't become offensive in your freedom. Strong believer must not lead the weak believer to violate their conscience. Don't be the guy that tries to convince somebody to do something that they're hesitant about. You run the risk of being the offending believer at that point. Don't be that guy. Keep your freedom to yourself, Paul says. Keep that faith to yourself. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. The strong believer must be more concerned about being helpful rather than being right. Hebrews 3.13 talks about our, our helping of others in their faith versus being a hindrance. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You say, well, how am I being a hindrance? How, how, how could I potentially be hardening someone to sin? 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul tells Timothy, hold faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. How'd they shipwreck their faith? They quit listening to their conscience. They violated their conscience. So don't be the guy that leads somebody to violate their conscience. You may inadvertently shipwreck their faith. Keep your faith, keep your understanding to yourself. Strong believer shows he is strong by giving up freedom when it's appropriate to. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble, Paul says. That's why I told you earlier, you can be sitting here and not smoke tobacco, not drink alcohol, and not have a tattoo, and be the strong brother, strong believer in all three of those categories. You can look at it and say, I'm free to do those things, I just don't. I just don't because I don't want to be offensive to others. I'm not weak in my view on tattoos. I see freedom in it. I'm just not sure that it's helpful to somebody who hasn't seen that freedom. So I'm not struggling with, should I get one, should I not, is it right, is it not right before God? It's, is it helpful? Same with alcohol. You may choose to not participate in alcohol for the simple reason, I don't want to offend somebody else. Can you give up your freedom? That's the sign of being a strong believer. It's someone who gives up their freedom versus someone who exercises their freedom. I can think it's okay and still not do it and be the strong believer. Then lastly, the strong believer must keep proper perspective about the kingdom. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. Look what he says in 
Back in Romans 14. We're almost done. For the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing or upbuilding. Paul says, don't let your activity be despised by other people. Instead, be of someone who pursues that peace. The application, you can put this on the back, some application questions for both. If you're strong or weak, these are questions for you to ask yourself. Am I biblically convinced about my beliefs? So as you think through some of the things we've talked about today, your views on alcohol, tobacco, tattoos, we didn't go into movies, um, we went into a little bit about marijuana. Are you convinced about what you believe about those things based on what God's word says versus anything in your past, what you were taught to do? Do you see that from God's word? Am I avoiding criticism of other Christians that don't see things my way? I want to emphasize the Christian aspect because they are Christians. Right? The guy that's going to be at lunch today that's wearing a suit and a tie and he's going to go home and take a nap today because he thinks it's wrong to do any type of activity on Sunday. If he's accepted the gospel, he's a Christian. He's part of the body of Christ. Christ died for him. He's seeking to honor God with his life. Same purpose as you, and he will stand before God one day. He's a Christian. Are we criticizing Christians or pursuing peace with other Christians? And the last question for all of us, am I judging myself to make sure my actions do not cause others to stumble? Am I judging myself to make sure my actions do not cause others to stumble? So instead of judging other people's actions, am I judging my own actions, making sure that I'm not causing other people to stumble? A couple of questions specifically for the strong believer. Is my freedom based on knowledge? Okay, so some of you drink in here, some of you use tobacco in here, some of you have tattoos in here. Are those things a fruit of your study of God's word? Or did somebody tell you one time that it was okay for Christians to do that and it became a provision for your flesh? Do I do the things that I do because I'm convinced scripturally that it's the best way for me to serve God? That it's profitable for me to do these things? Am I willing to give up my freedom? For those of you that do some of these things, participate in some of these things regularly, if I came to you and said, hey, we've got somebody in our church that's offended by that behavior, I, I would like to request that you not do this anymore. Would that be an issue? I mean, would you flare up and want to fight and quarrel over it, or would you say, hey, the kingdom's about righteousness and joy and peace. I'll, I'll, not, I'll not do this thing if it's offensive to somebody. I, I, I want the gospel to be proclaimed, not alcohol, not tobacco, not tattoos, not these other things. For the strong believers we leave today, don't flaunt your freedom or try to convince others. Don't flaunt it. That's what I love about our church is that I know some of you drink. Others of you would have no clue that some people in our church drink. You've never seen it. You've never heard about it. It's not flaunted. So I don't speak to this to say that some of you are flaunting this. I don't, I don't think you are. I've not picked up on that. I don't believe that. There are other churches in our community that seem to be flaunting that. I don't think that's here. Be cautious that you don't try to lead people into it, though. Don't flaunt your freedom by trying to convince others to participate with you.
So just some general reminders. Don't despise each other. Don't judge each other. Don't violate your conscience. And don't destroy somebody else's faith with the choices that you're making. Let's pray, and then if you have any questions, I'll take them. Father, we thank you that we are free in Christ. God, that we have been liberated from a mentality of works. That we are made right with you, that we are approved by you because Jesus Christ died in our place. He lived a perfect life. And God, we are thankful that one day, while we seek to do this daily in our hearts, we seek to bow before you and we seek to confess you as Lord, that one day soon we will be able to do this physically. As every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we anxiously look forward to that day of your return. And as we wait for that day, Father, I pray that we would be mindful of others. Uh, God, I pray that we would not despise those that believe differently than us, that we would not judge others that seem to have more freedom than we feel compelled to have in our own life. Father, I pray that all of us would be drawn to God's Word. Father, while Paul does not criticize or try to correct the weak brother, God, I believe that you use the word weak to spur us on to realize we don't want to be in this position. That the weak brother should not be content in his weakness. So Father, I pray that we'd be driven to God's word. That we would fill our minds so that it's renewed in you. So that we can be fully convinced that the choices and decisions that we're making are not sinful, that they're honoring to you, and that the best way for us to live missionally as we seek to reach people around us. Father, for those that are enjoying some of these freedoms, Father, I pray that they would use them for your glory and not just for the opportunity to indulge themselves. Father, they would find creative ways to use these freedoms to reach other people that enjoy these things, that they would have the perspective that the kingdom is bigger than what I eat and drink. But eating and drinking is necessary. And so while I'm eating and drinking, I am going to build on the righteousness and peace and joy of the kingdom. Father, use our church for your glory. Continue to make us unified as we accept each other's differences and beliefs and faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions? If you got to go, you can go. Any questions, thoughts, comments that you want to add or get clarification on? Something that you're thinking in regards to all this? Yep. Yep, yeah, and I, I didn't mention that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't anticipate the marijuana thing, but it is relevant because it's becoming more legalized. But yeah, we ultimately have to submit to our government, uh, which we learned in chapter 13. So that does prohibit, for some, alcohol use. You don't have a choice to make until you're over 21. Tobacco use, still 18, right? You don't have a choice to make until you're, you're over 18. It's against the law. Um, and so we're to be submitted to our government. Parents are to be submitted to the government and not offer those things to underage children. Um, that's just, that's, that's submission. That's, that's where we put to bed, you know, the foolish talk of people that want to criticize our faith. Um, so yeah, that, that has to be accounted for. And so in, in our state, it's still illegal. So the marijuana thing uh, wouldn't be permitted unless you take a skiing vacation to Colorado and um, want to participate there. And you have to wrestle through that issue. Other thoughts, questions about some of this stuff? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think that's 
from my from my perspective, that has changed a lot over the last ten years in this area. And I think with those changes, it's also caused me to change my perspective on alcohol some because it has become more socially acceptable from the Christian standpoint to know people that are doing this. The, the other consideration for the marijuana thing is that socially that has such negative connotations. That's, that's probably not something that a believer would participate in and ever be viewed as, that's an intelligent move, you know? Like that, that typically isn't viewed that way from secular people. Um, and so I think that has to be put into consideration as well, for sure. Other thoughts, questions? All right. Just, just as a reminder, I think the strongest of the strong believers are the ones that can participate in this stuff and you aren't always aware of it, you know? So you're not the guy that gets a tattoo and goes sleeveless the first Sunday you can to show it off, you know? You're not the guy on Facebook that always conveniently turns his can so there's no question that I am drinking a Bud Light in my selfie picture. You know, like, you can, you can enjoy these freedoms without flaunting the freedoms, you know? And so I think the strongest of the strong believers are the ones that have tattoos and you would have never known. I mean, I know of at least three people in our church that have it. Some of you would probably not even know certain people have tattoos in our church. Um, those are the strongest of the believers, the ones that enjoy the freedom but they're keeping it between themselves and God. They're not flaunting it. They're not trying to push their agenda and get everybody else doing it with them. They enjoy it. They see it as, as God's creation. They're participating in it. They've deemed it good for them uh, as a way for them to enjoy what Christ has created, uh, but they're not pushing it on others, and that doesn't cause someone to violate their conscience. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.